Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, hello and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I've got a great guest lined up for you today, uh, Mr. Richard Pete Hill. Pete, Thanks uh, for being a guest on the show today. Earl, it's always my pleasure to hang out with you, my good man. I love it. I always love getting to, a chance to chat with you. So listeners, uh, Pete and I know each other fairly well. We're good friends. We've had business ventures together. We've done a lot of training and travel and all kinds of good stuff together. But what you should know is Pete was born and raised in the great state of Mississippi, where he spent the first 19 years of his life. He spent the next 22 years of his life in the U.S. Army. And while on active duty, he earned a master's degree in human resource management and subsequently retired at the rank of master sergeant. His interest in history started when he was a young child, and throughout his adult life, he has taught himself black history as framed by legislation and court decisions. Pete's presented in several locations. I've been with him on a few of them, and he is an excellent presenter. Uh, But he's presented black history lectures at Simmons College, a, a historically black college and university, in Louisville, Kentucky, and at churches and federal agencies across the country. Uh, Pete is an equity, diversity, and inclusion practitioner and is currently pursuing his Doctorate of Business Administration at Walden University. So, Pete, we've had this discussion a few times, and I'm really kind of interested to hear how you answer this question uh, for the listeners. But when you hear the words responsible leadership, what do those mean to you? Immediately, Earl, when I hear the word responsible, I think of accountability. As you mentioned in my bio, I spent 22 years in the Army. And the one thing they indoctrinated me with is you are always accountable 24-7. So when I hear responsible leadership, what I hear is a leader who's always accountable for his or her actions 24-7. I like it. I like it. As you know, that that kind of lines up a lot with, with my ideas of responsible leadership. But uh, so let's talk about your army time for a little bit, because uh, your your time in the army is kind of where you got introduced uh, to to EEO, right? That's exactly right. Uh, back in 1992, as memory serves, I got what they call in the army a "Hey you" mission, meaning "Hey you, lowest ranking this guy, <laughs> we're going to send you to a school called Equal Opportunity Training." And so from there, Earl, I've um, been doing this type of work since 1992, on and off, trying to help folks know what their rights and responsibilities are under employment law. So now the one thing that, that may stick out as kind of odd to, to folks there uh, about that is is the timing and the location. Why was the Army so concerned about EEO at the time? 
Well, thanks to the tail hook scandal, which occurred uh, the decade before in 1989, but the Navy decided to be sexual harassers, I believe, in a conference out in Las Vegas, the tail hook scandal, as they call it. The entire DOD went into lockdown to show the world that, hey, we are an equal opportunity employer and women are just as welcome in the military as men. And so the EEO program, Equal Employment Opportunities, became a thing. And what we did all at that time, we made a great emphasis on prevention and awareness of sexual harassment. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, that was a little bit before my time in the military, but I remember reading about that. And and if if any of the listeners haven't, I'll try to find uh, some info and, and link that in the show notes there so you can kind of see what this tail hook scandal was all about. But yeah, it was, that was a pretty tragic event, but uh, the, the roots for diversity and inclusion and EEO and all that, they go back to, I want to say the Vietnam war, right? Well, yeah. So if you ask me about the entire program itself, you are absolutely correct. While in Vietnam, speaking of black history, there was a major uh, issue of race at this time or we're in the middle of the civil civil rights movement. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had just been assassinated in 1968. And um, a lot of those soldiers were from inner cities, unemployed before they joined the military, more likely to not draft it. And at this time, they are more radical than any of their predecessors who wore the uniform. And so when Dr. King was assassinated, that was the breaking point, if you will, for the soldiers in the field. And things became so bad that the military issued a report saying that racism was a national security issue in the war in Vietnam. And so that was the reason why the Equal Opportunity Program itself came into existence. Yeah, no, I mean, and and I think for listeners, you know, and I know I've got a lot of veteran listeners here, uh, but I also know I've got a lot of non-veteran listeners. And so the idea that uh, EEO and diversity and inclusion and those things could be a national security issue might be a little might be a little new to some folks, but, uh, you know, my, I'm trying to remember now, he was one of my very first guests, like episode three or four, uh, Colonel Lee Ellis. Uh, he was a POW at the Hanoi Hilton. Um, and if you read anything on, on those folks there, like racism was used uh, against us uh, quite routinely by our enemies. And, and at the Hanoi Hilton, uh, they had caught a uh, African-American pilot by the name of Colonel Cherry and threw him in the, in a cell with a gentleman, uh, Halliburton was his last name. I can't remember his rank. He may have been a captain or a colonel himself. I can't remember. But essentially, they didn't. The Vietnamese played those racial tensions uh, to try to get those two guys pitted against each other. And there were some trust issues in the beginning, but they had to kind of overcome it because uh, they used Halliburton. He was from the South. They assumed he would just be a, a raging racist. But that's just one example of how racism and uh, diversity and inclusion has been used, tried to be used against us. But as you said, being a black history uh, buff, this has been something our enemies have been trying to pit against America pretty much uh, for, for a very long time, right? That's exactly right, Earl. We can go all the way back to the Revolutionary War, when the British offered freedom to the slaves if they joined the British side of the war. Uh, they did it again in 1812, the War of 1812. The uh, Vietnamese did it. The Germans did it. The Japanese did it. One of the, Again, this is why the Department of Defense recognized racism as a national security issue by the time we got to Vietnam for the first time in its history. I will remind your listeners that even Abraham Lincoln, use racism against the South when he issued, I want you to think about this for the moment, because Jefferson Davis thought of it this way. The Emancipation Proclamation was no different than the cards that the Vietnamese dropped in Vietnam saying, why are you fighting us when you are being mistreated in your own country? Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation had the same effect. What he said to the South was, if you don't return to the Union, he used the threat of freeing slaves, racism, 
slaves are, are, are black people are enslaved and he's using them as a bargaining chip Earl. Black people as a bargaining chip as a terror threat. If you don't return to the union, I will free your slaves. What do you yeah. think the greatest terror threat was to the South at the time when all of their able-bodied men are out in the field serving as either military officers or foot soldiers? That means the plantations are being run by the least capable males left in society. You're older people, you're very young, or you're infirmed. And now you hear that slaves are going to be freed. That is no different than if you're a white officer in the field and you're in the jungle and you're seeing these um, flyers that are telling your black troops, why are you fighting us when these same white people are mistreating you in your own country? So to answer your question, throughout our history, people either internally, the Civil War, or externally, our enemies, have used our own racism against us. So up to this point, you know, we've really been kind of talking about historical context here. And I think we're going to circle back to that because, uh, you know, listeners know I love history. And uh, once they get to know you a little bit better, they're going to realize that you really love history and have a great uh, grasp for it. But, you know, we're talking right now about how historically this has been used as a national security issue. Uh, but it's really no different in our organizations today, right? I mean, one organization is using diversity and inclusion uh, to market themselves against another organization as having a more inclusive in w work environment. And, and units inside of, of an organization are, uh, are kind of trying to pit each other uh, against each other from time to time based off of race and, and ethnicity and things like that. So um, how, why should organizations really kind of wrap their head around the history and importance of diversity and inclusion other than because they have to? Well, yes, it was considered a national security threat to the nation itself. Imagine being a business owner and you're doing a SWOT analysis, your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Your greatest threat to survival in a diverse society is non-inclusion. And so I want you to try to think about, or at least your audience, that company that vocalizes publicly that they are against diversity and inclusion. I've heard of zero companies that do that because unlike the rest of the society, the ones who politicians appeal to, Notice commercial folks or people in um, capitalism, businesses, none of them have advocated we are against diversity, equity, and inclusion. They do just the opposite. So much so that you and I have pointed out folks like Starbucks and others who have quickly jumped on the DEI uh, terminology to demonstrate how inclusive and how anti-racist they are to the detriment of their own employee or workforce because of the poor training that they provided. But I can think of no company, Earl, who doesn't realize that inclusion is a force multiplier. Politicians use it as a wedge issue because they have a different agenda. They're simply trying to get in power or stay in power. But people who are in this for profits, the almighty dollar, they understand how the American people really function. And that is the vast majority of Americans believe in inclusion. Well, let's tap into some of that history again real quick, because you, you tell a story that I think really kind of drives the point home very well. And you tell the story of, um, and, and I'll let you fill in the details. I'm giving you kind of the fuzzies here to get you on track. But uh, you tell a story of a, a black unit in, I believe it was World War One, maybe it was World War Two, where the, the Germans actually tried to essentially recruit them, right? Right. So what happened all is in World War One, blacks were reluctantly recruited to help make the world safe for democracy. When they got to Europe with the Doughboys, the American commanding general refused to allow them to fight for America. He gave his black troops to the French. And so the Harlem Hellfighters is the name of the group, the 369th. They had won more medals of honor than any other unit black units in World War One, not just from their own country, but from the French. They won the highest medal of honor from the French. 
the Harlem Hellfighters were feared by the Germans. They, they're the ones that refer to them as Hellfighters because they were so difficult to defeat. But that's the story I was telling you about the 369th, that they could not even wear their own uniforms. And when you see pictures of them, you would note that they're not wearing an American uniform, that they're wearing the uniform of their French officers because the Americans refused to allow them to fight for their own country, basically. Yeah, so that's the, I guess, the point that I was, and I love that story uh, because, you know, those are things that a lot, a lot of people know about. You know, but the point is, is, uh, you know, when you have talented people, somebody's going to find a place for them. And if it's not you, they will find a place to land and be made, uh, have their talents made available and they're going to succeed. And so, you know, diversity and inclusion and EEO, I always tell folks, and you've heard me say this a bunch of times when we've been in in, uh, our talks. I'm not into diversity and inclusion for the sake of diversity and inclusion. I'm in it for the sake of success, right? These are the things that successful teams, successful organizations, successful countries, these are the things that they do. They make people feel as if they belong. They make people feel included. They make people feel, uh, you know, like, like they can be a part of a, a diverse group where they're valued. And so, you know, for any of the, the holdouts here on diversity and inclusion, I want you to stop looking at it as a, as a political issue, as a, this is my side of the aisle versus your side of the aisle. This is a thing that successful organizations do. Um, if I may, Mr. Bria. You sure can. So one of the things I want to go back to, because you mentioned about the beauty of equity, diversity, and inclusion, right, and why you are in it. Mm-hmm. One of the things I want to point out, because you asked me about the 369th Hellfighters, about inclusion. The military did the diversity part of that equation. What they didn't do was the inclusion part. So when these black soldiers diversified the military, they were sent overseas with their white counterparts. But once they got there, they were not included. They were excluded so much so that they were placed in a foreign army in order to defend their own country. So imagine what that looks like in the modern workplace. We are still doing the same things. With women is a good example. We will diversify the workforce to say we have women. I used to work for a particular federal agency that had about, when I got there, 17 to 18% women. By the time I left, they probably were up to 20%. And that was not through any particular efforts of their own. Sheer happenstance, in my opinion. The point is, those women who did make it into the organization, they did diversify but they were never, ever, ever feeling as if they were included because they were working just as hard to stay in the organization as they had to do to get into the organization. And likewise, the Harlem Hellfighters, they literally had to beg their country to fight and defend democracy. So they got into it. The diversity piece was met. But when they went overseas, they were excluded, not included. So the inclusion piece never came into existence. Yeah, no. And, and I've seen that happen too, you know, with my work with, uh, you know, in, in the, the civilian uh, federal government sector, uh, my work with private companies, um, you know, I've seen that happen way too many times. They put in this major recruitment effort, they bring all these people in and then they flip around and they, they wonder why that same demographic is the fastest demographic leaving the organization. And, you know, a lot of times, like like Pete said there, it comes down to those policies, right? If you bring women into the workforce, but you don't create a female-friendly environment, uh, you know, they're going to they're gonna leave. They're going to realize that this was just, uh, you know, lipstick on a pig, so to speak, that you didn't really mean it. And why do you think it is, uh, with your experiences, that when, when people go in and they invest all this time, all this money into diversity and inclusion programs, that a lot of them, as you just mentioned, they either have an impact that's kind of short term or the impact is very small. And then you got people running around saying, hey, that was a waste of money. Why did we do that? I called it M and M, not the rapper, but the letters M and M. Motive versus motivation, Earl. If your motive was simply to say I'm checking a block, that I'm going to meet the legal requirements, 
that I want to be on par with my competitor. And if those are your motives, you're going to be short-sighted and your program will be short-lived. But if your motivation is truly in your heart because it's based on what they say in emotional intelligence, empathy, then your program is going to be well laid out. It will be time bound. It will be consistent and it will be based on smart goals. And so therefore you understood from the beginning that I need to be able to fund this through a budgetary effort. I need to be able to give the appropriate personnel, uh, dedicate the appropriate personnel to it, or be it subject matter experts, uh, diversity councils, ERGs, employee resource groups. I'm doing all of this planning in the beginning so that when I reach execution phase, it makes sense. A good example of this using the military. In 1990, I was a part of Operation Desert Storm. We did a whole bunch of planning for what turned out to be a 90-day war. We spent three times as much time planning that 90-day war as we did executing that war. The greatest feat they did, Earl, was the logistics. They sent damn near the entire United States military to that theater of war. Could you imagine all of the helicopters, tanks, et cetera, they had to move from the continental United States. I was in Europe at the time. So from Germany, assets from Korea, so forth and so on, all concentrated into the Middle East. They planned that first. They didn't just show up and then start planning. This is what normally happens in corporations with diversity and inclusion. Motive versus motivation. If your motive is short-sighted, your motivation will be limited. Yeah, no. And, and you know, again, you have to look no further than some of the things that, that Pete and I mentioned kind of at the beginning there. A lot of these major, well-advertised diversity and inclusion movements are responses uh, to instances with the organization. You know, let's take Starbucks. Again, I give Starbucks a lot of credit for shutting down all 15,537,000 dollars uh, stores they had just here in the greater Indianapolis metropolitan area uh, for the day, because that was a lot of money uh, that, that the company lost. Uh, but, you know, it was just one day and it was in response to uh, a few instances that had happened in their stores. I think Pete would agree and, and, and tell me if you don't and if you have any tips to add here, but, you know, kind of what Pete's meaning there by motive and motivation if you're bringing people in like us, and this this does sound very self-serving. Yes, I, I get that for the listener. But if you're bringing people in like us on a routine, constant basis, you're making this part of who you are, not just what you respond to. Then you have staff that believe in diversity and inclusion. You have staff that believe in EEO initiatives. You have staff that are going to uh, make this a part of their store if you're a chain they're going to make this a part of your organization. They're going to make this part of how you do business on a daily basis. And it kind of inoculates you for the most part against having these types of, you know, major PR crisis. Uh, I mean, because, again, think about all the money. I mean, for those of you who don't remember, Starbucks had a couple of instances where where cops were called on, on black uh, customers and it turned into a major storm for them across the country. They got protests and all that. And they had to cut down every single store in the, in the, I think it was global. They did it across the world for an entire day. They did something like eight or 12 hours of training for one day. Now imagine if you do that as part of who you are, as part of your onboarding practices, as part of your continuing education and continuing improvement plan for promotions and all that kind of good stuff. It's a lot cheaper and a lot easier and a lot more effective to just make this part of who you are than something you react to, isn't it, Pete? That is exactly right, Earl. And that brings us to the difference between training and education. Starbucks did a great job of training folks, but training is something that can happen instantaneously. Example given, a young child touches a stove and it's hot and they snatch their hand away immediately. They have been trained that if you do this enough times, over time you will become educated. But the first instance was simply training. 
That's why if you do something repetitively, you know who's good at that? The military. You do things over and over again because we start with training, but we end with education because on the battlefield, training is over, baby. Education kicks in now. What have I learned and remembered? That's education. Training is the experience. All Starbucks, all Starbucks did was invest in training. They gave you the experience or the idea of anti this, that, and the other, but they didn't truly educate anyone. That takes time. It's not going to happen overnight. That's why you touch that stove with a young child more than once. First time it was simply a training experience. By the third time it became a educational experience. It's starting to set in now or it becomes second nature. At some point you have an aha moment as a child. Do you still touch stoves, by the way? Uh, not on purpose. <laughs> not on purpose. Evolved from training to education, my friend. And yet the educated among us are always shocked at the people who are still in the training phase. This is a problem with what we do for a living as practitioners and consultants. Some of us find it difficult to believe that all of us are not on the same sheet of music. In other words, we are pushing away more people than we are pulling in, if you will, because of the way we approach so-called training. This is why, let's bring up the taboo word these days, critical race theory, right? I'm glad you went there. Yeah. And so critical race theory, again, is a misperception or a misallocation of a theory to something it was never designed to do. And so people are pretending as if children are being trained and educated to become racist. That you're using, um, it's almost like in martial arts or where you use your opponent's strengths against them, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is what they're doing here with what I call equity, diversity, and inclusion, right? That we took that and turned it on his head by making folks believe that critical race theory, something that was created by Professor Derrick Bell, to simply say history should be instructive. That if we're talking housing policy and you don't understand redlining, if you don't understand how housing policy intersected with people's credit scores and credit scores intersect with people's indebtedness and the people's indebtedness, credit scores, and redlining dictated where you lived and where you live dictates the education system in your neighborhood because it's based on taxes. And so when you live in a rundown neighborhood because a government policy redlining is established for a sole purpose to keep an entire race of people congregated in a particular side of town. You and I both grew up as Southerners. Yep. So when we look at our towns, well, I'll just speak for my southern town. Earl. There was a black side of town and there was a white side of town. This was not something that had signs that said black side, white side. It was an understood you. That black people were on one side of my town and white people were on another side of my town. But yet blacks and whites would have said to you, our town is fully integrated. Yet if you went to a neighborhood, it would be clear to anyone visiting I don't see any white people here or I don't see any black people here. But yet we told ourselves we were fully integrated. So critical race theory simply points out why that is, Earl, because if we don't understand as Simon Sinek points out, start with why. That's what critical race theory is. So why do we think it's okay to start with why as a business listening to Simon Sinek that's what he says, right? Start with why. That's what Derek Bell is saying. Start with why. That's critical race theory. Why is it that policies said fill in the blank? One of the things I talk about in my uh, consultancy is the equity lens. And one of the questions we ask when it comes to policy is who will it benefit and who will it harm when you do this policy proposal? So for instance, if critical race theory existed in the 1930s and 40s when redlining became a thing. 
I will remind your audience, it was a federal government policy, not some local guy, local woman or guy in some southern town, if we would like to believe. This was some mastermind in Washington freaking D.C. that came up with that brilliant plan. It was federal policy. Critical race theory start with why. Why is it that we came up with redlining? The equity lens says when that policy was created, someone in the room should have said, who will this benefit and who will it harm? And what is our plan for mitigation? If we had had that honest dialogue when this idea came into existence, it never would have become a policy. Because if you answered those two questions in earnest, it would have been abundantly clear somebody would benefit, somebody would be harmed, and there's no plan to mitigate it because redlining was the point. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, I mean, it does to me, obviously, and I hope it does to, to my listeners because, you know, I've talked about redlining on here before. I actually uh, was interviewing a lady in, in um, finance out in Colorado and, and she actually brought it up because she had just become aware that this was a thing that was driving um, mortgages in, in her area of Colorado. And so we had to talk about it. And I think that's the, the key factor. What, what you said there, Pete is what is getting called critical race theory. Isn't really critical race theory. It's, it's, it's teaching history as it happened. It's teaching history uh, with all of kind of the unvarnished, uh, uh, I'll use the term whitewashed uh, facts applied because like you said, redlining is a policy that not many people actually know about. It's becoming more and more popular. Uh, but this is a reason why I love listening to, to your uh, black hole podcast. I'm going to have a link to that there because you share some of this history and it, and it's history that doesn't really get taught in American history classes. Um, but where I'm going with this is what Pete is saying here is, is completely important because this is understanding history completely, right? He, he laid out redlining uh, brilliantly, but there's a lot of other policies there that were driven by racism in the past. It doesn't mean that you're just because these policies still exist doesn't necessarily mean that, that you're racist because now you're aware of it. You can't do anything about something until you're aware that it exists, right? The point of it here is now let's make as many people as possible aware of the history behind these decisions, behind these policies. And now that you're aware of the racist undertones behind these policies, what are you going to do about it going forward? And, and Pete, I think you'll agree with me here and maybe not, but you know, when we hear these radical stories of teachers, you know, making their white students apologize to their black students for slavery, that's not what we want to do. That's taking it too far, right? We want students to be aware and understand that, that slavery happened, but that's when people say, well, that's not my kid's fault. He didn't own slaves. No, he didn't. But he needs to understand the, the, the fallout from that system, right? So he doesn't need to be apologizing to folks. He didn't do it. But let's talk about what happened and what the outcomes were. And there's another piece of, of this story that I really, because I think a lot of folks today, especially white folks today, don't get. And you and I have had this discussion. Historically speaking, white didn't always mean white, right? That is correct. Historically speaking, Earl, we refer to ourselves as Europeans, as Africans, etc. It wasn't until around the year 1684 that white became a thing. And that only became a thing because at that time, poor whites realized that rich whites were mistreating them. And so you got to understand that in America, there was two types of slaves. They had different names. The European slaves were called indentured, indentured servants. And Africans were called, well, slaves. Well, in America, in the early days of slavery, it was nothing like the slavery you read about by the time the Civil War shows up, that in those days, because there were both white and black slaves, they were on the same economic level, the same societal levels, so they could intermarry, they could hang out with one another because they were in the same economic group. They just had different skin colors. 
that was shown no difference between the two until they joined together and rebelled against the white power structure of white males at that time who had money, the one percenters of their day. Well, the one percenters quickly realized they were outnumbered. And so they needed a boogeyman. And that boogeyman became white. We designated this set of slaves as white. And we accorded them certain privileges that we purposely neglected to give to the black slaves. And so we did not improve the economic condition of the poor white. We just gave them a better psychological standing. Well, at least you ain't black is what you got to say at the end of the day. But your circumstances, and this is still true right now in my great state of Mississippi. I don't give a damn whether you're poor black or poor white. The thing you have in common is the word poor. Yet we're on two different ideological sides of the aisle, or Republican, Democrat, etc. All because of that word white. And so when you hear people saying, well, what do you mean there's no such thing as white or no such thing as black? These are truly social constructs. You know when you'll find out? Let a natural disaster happen. See 9-11. On that one day, everybody in New York City were just New Yorkers. I did not see people saying, because you're white, I'm not going to give you water. Because you're black, I'm not going to run in this burning building to try to save you. No. You were just a New Yorker that day. And everybody did what was necessary, Mr. Breon, to protect themselves from that terrorist attack. We served in the military. You may come into the military as a racist or a homophobe or whatever you may be. But it's very difficult to leave that way, particularly if you're baptized by combat. Because bullets don't care what your perspective is. It just wants to kill, and it will kill indiscriminately. And so you learn to work with one another in unison for survival purposes, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's it. And and I've, I've threw this stat out here a couple of times on the show and uh, talking with other folks in the diversity and inclusion space. But as, as you know, I went and looked it up one time, and uh, you, you take the two most genetically diverse people on the face of the planet and their DNA makeup is still 99.9% identical. So the way I frame that to folks is we're really finding over a 10th of a percent of difference. Uh, sounds pretty silly. Just any way you slice it. I don't care if it's in a boardroom. I don't care if it's in the school boardroom. I don't care where it is. When you're 99.9% of the, the, the same and you're letting that 10th of a percent drive all of these decisions that we see playing out, um, you know, on, on a national stage, whether it's, whether it's racism, whether it's, you know, uh, ethnic cleansing, whatever it is, we're fighting over a 10th of a percent of difference, folks. That's silly to me. Um, but Pete, look, again, I, I'm loving what you're sharing here. And I really hope that, that people, and when I say people, I mean, uh, everybody kind of gets off this critical race theory train because I don't know of a single elementary school teacher, uh, high school teacher that is, is actually teaching critical race theory. I think they're really just shining a light on some of these historical things that, that people don't really know about. And especially that last piece about what whiteness is. I think I shared this with you. Maybe not. I was doing some uh, kind of reading on my own to kind of really understand this topic a little bit better. And it wasn't that long ago. I want to say early to mid 1800s, maybe late 1800s, that white Scandinavians, I'm using air quotes when I say white here, uh, in Minnesota were not considered white because of their Scandinavian Viking past, uh, knowing that they had made it into Africa and places like that. Uh, they were thought to, at, to have a high probability of having at least some, quote, African blood in them, so they weren't considered white at the time. I think if most people think of Scandinavians, that's all they think. They're the whitest of the whites, right? Uh, so it's, it's like you said, social issues, social construct issues. Um, and we see this play out in organizations all the time as well. Like you're, especially if you're an organization that has a long history, maybe not so much startups now, but maybe some of that is, has carried over. If you're not aware of, 
of your biases and, and uh, the, the influences in your environment. But especially some of our long-standing organizations, they have some of these policies kind of built into to their system, maybe not as overt or not as obvious, but somewhat overtly. You may have these long-standing policies that are built in that you need to reckon with. Um, and that happens quite a bit, doesn't it, Pete? It most certainly does. Again, it goes back to motive versus motivation. But I want to go back to something we talked about earlier, if I may, sir. It's, it's relevant to what you just said, Earl. And again, good, your good friend Simon Sinek says starts with why. The conversation we've been having basically is about the workplace and how we should know about critical race theory, which is why I believe, Earl, we should adopt as leaders, responsible leaders, start with race. Everything in America is predicated on the idea of race to include our constitution. There's no escaping it. And what we've done collectively as a society is to pretend as if race doesn't have the power that it does. They say the greatest trick the devil ever played was to convince so-called believers that he doesn't exist. Same thing with racism, Earl. The greatest tragedy we ever did as a nation was to convince ourselves that racism no longer exists, that these people who are crying about racism, and by the way, I would point out to your audience, just as many white people cry out about racism as do black people. Why don't we notice that? Because if it bleeds, it leaves. And so we um, misdirect all the time in American history, right? For instance, I told you about when you look at the picture of the March on Washington, it's a very multicultural event. Start with race. And the last thing I wanted to point out, or we keep saying people are not teaching critical race theory. I would argue that they are and they should be. That I think the greatest mistake so-called liberals made was pretending as if critical race theory is not being taught. Critical race theory is being taught. The theory of critical race theory, the one that Derrick Bell came up with in and of itself might not be taught. That's a legal theory, but critical. That word means something. When something is critical, it's an emergency. Race. If you show up at school, everything is about race. Critical race theory. What is a theory? A theory is something that is not yet a law. There's a theory of relativity, which means it can be still disproven. But then there's the law of gravity. I don't care where you go on Earth, the law of gravity will go with you. You cannot believe in it if you want to. It will believe in you. Trust me when I tell you. And so what I tell folks on my podcast, Earl, to hell with critical race theory, call it what it is, critical historical facts, but you end up in the same place. So you don't like the letter CRT. I'm cool with that. So teach critical historical facts. You can't deny those facts. It is a fact that lynching was a thing in America. It is a fact that segregation did not end until 1964. It is a fact that even when all of those things happened, there were certain forces in America that wanted to continue those old ideas. And so they've done everything they could to undermine progress made by all types of races of Americans, not just blacks, Hispanics, whites, Japanese, Asians, you name it. They've all tried to push the civil rights ball a little further down the field. I went on a rant there. I apologize. But. No, it was it was good stuff. Good stuff. And, you know, I mean, and that's the thing, folks. And, and that's why I love history. Uh, that's why I spend so much time kind of trying to find different nuggets of history. And that's one of the reasons why I value Mr. Hill as, as a friend, because especially when it comes to, to black history, something I really have not been that exposed to because, you know, he mentioned what his uh, town in Mississippi looked like. My town in, in Tennessee, you had. The, the, the white side of town and the whiter side of town. That was it. There was no white or black side in my, my hometown. But when, when we understand these things, and I hope that you all have picked up on this through this conversation, whether it's in school, whether it's in local government, whether it's in, in county, state government, whether it's federal government, whether it's your organization, these things matter. History matters. And the more you know your history, the better armed you are to tackle these topics and to, to be able to make better decisions, uh, create stronger policies that that 
have an equitable impact. I'm not going to say a positive impact because sometimes policies do have unintended negative impacts. But the point is, when it happens, they're equitable, right? They, they hit everybody uh, the, the same way. And then you're able to come back and adjust and, and make a better policy the next time. If you're not aware of your history, if you're not aware of how these decisions have been made in the past and the impacts that they have had, both intended and unintended, you're just going to make those same mistakes again. So that's why history is important to you, your organizations, your schools, your counties, your cities, and even in your, your own home. So take some time. Uh, again, I, I mentioned it before. I'm going to, I'm going to put it in the show notes, but uh, if you're, especially Rusty on black history. Mr. Hill has a great podcast called the Black Hole Podcast. And uh, talk about that real quick. So let, let people know what the Black Hole Podcast is there, Pete. So what I try to do with the Black, black Hole Podcast is to look for historical facts that occurred in the black community that were left out of the history books. If we don't know about uh, myths, legends, or and heroes, right? We call those archetypes. Mm-hmm prototypes and stereotypes, right? So my Black History podcast fills in the blank for archetypes. These are your heroes, your myths, and your legends. They are missing in American history for black folks. When you miss archetypes, sir, you miss motivation. You miss inspiration. I tell this story on my podcast, and I'll share it here now. I'd always wanted to be a soldier for as long as I could remember. But whenever I watched television, I never saw anyone that looked like me in war movies. So it led me to believe that black people could not be soldiers. And so I almost did not become a soldier until one day by happenstance, I saw my uncle Fred wearing this funny looking hat with all these medals on it. Come to find out he was a World War II veteran. I saw zero faces of black soldiers in my Mississippi history books at the time that gave me any indication that black folks could be soldiers. I went on to discover, Earl, that during this space race, we tied one hand behind our backs because we did not allow black scientists in the fight. That's why in 2012, when Hidden Figures came out, so many people, to include white people, were shocked of the contributions that black people gave to the space program. Why did we not know about these people until 2012? Could you imagine all of the little black girls who aspired to be scientists but had no role model to look to to give them the idea, yes, you can. Now, after the movie, look at all of the people, both black, white, Jew, and Gentile, who have been inspired by that story. And so my Black Hole podcast tries to find inspirational stories that are not told in history books, but matter. One of my stories I tell is about the first black astronaut whom I'd never heard of. And I don't want to go too much in detail because I want folks to go to the podcast. But it was amazing the story as I was reading it and how an assassination literally stopped the first black guy from being a part of the original 14 astronauts. Had Lee Harvey Oswald not fired that shot, history would have been different because that president was fully committed to making sure that individual was going to be in that space program. But once he died, the inspiration died with him. I tell stories about the refrigerator truck and the black contribution to something that is so, um, it was a game changer, Earl, for food. A black person did that. I had no idea. Again, imagine all of the little geniuses who looked like me, but didn't know that. But if they had, how much motivation would they have had to continue their dreams? And so the Black Hole podcast isn't just for black folks. Black Hole stands for the whole truth about black history. But I want to leave your listeners with this idea. Black history is, my friend, American history. Yep, 100%. I agree with you. And that's how it, that's how it should be taught, right? And if, if it was taught that way, you know, we wouldn't be having a lot of these arguments because it would just be, again, how we do business. Um, Pete, man, this has been a great conversation here. Uh, I know we, we talked a lot about, you know, history, black history and, and how it ties into organizations. But I also know that there's a lot more that you and I could talk about. So 
Uh, we're probably going to have to have you come back on the show again sometime here in the future. But uh, for now, as we look to wrap up, uh, is there anything that we didn't really get a chance to cover this time that you want to leave listeners with? Well, I won't say that we didn't cover it, Earl, but I really want them to consider what we talked about. When we talked about motive versus motivation, when we talked about start with race and why that's important, or when I said, please remember to ask that single question, who will benefit from or be burdened by whatever policy you are considering? And so those are the thoughts I would like to leave your audience with. All right. So um, they want to find out more about you, find out more about the Black Hole podcast, maybe have you come uh, speak to their their uh, organization. What's a good way for folks to find out about uh, Richard Pete Hill? It's a real simple way, Earl. Just go to richardpetehill.com. There you can follow me on social media. You can request my services as a consultant. And you'll be able to listen to my podcast. Outstanding. Uh, so again, listeners will have those links in there and make it nice and easy for you. Pete, brother, I really appreciate you taking the time being with me and my listeners and having this outstanding discussion about what responsible leadership looks like, especially when it comes to these uh, race and uh, gender and, and equity issues. Uh, thank you for your time. And I really appreciate you having this discussion with us today. The Army is always happy to save the Marines. It's my pleasure, sir. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Electric Acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Electric Acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together, we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Electric Acid.